Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Sunday service. It's a different venue, uh, a different look, uh, but the purpose is still is still the same: to meet together, to praise together, and to open God's Word together. So, from the comfort uh, of your own home, with your jammies on or uh, with a cup of coffee in your hand, please know that by joining together in this way, the Lord is with us too. It's almost like He promised that for days just like this. For anyone joining us uh, as a visitor, uh, as it were, from the local community or from across uh, the globe, then please know that our love is also with you and your family. Uh, You are most welcome. Given the latest announcements on social isolation in the UK, we're uh, coming to you from a few homes uh, across the city and then using the power of technology to stitch it all together. I'm sure you and uh, the rest of the church family are missing each other. I I certainly am. Uh, Every day feels uh, a little bit strange. Uh, And we're all experiencing it uh, in different ways. Some are busier than ever, uh, juggling more balls than you've ever known possible. Some may be struggling uh, with the isolation. And and there are others uh, who are still working hard uh, on the front line in the health service. It's clear uh, and it's likely that more difficult days lie ahead. But through it all, uh, our prayer is that you will have strength for each day as you trust in the Lord and seek his face. The psalmist in Psalm 94 verse 19 says, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. We're going to sing uh, a few songs uh, in this service. Uh, the first one has at its heart the cross of Christ and it reminds us of Jesus' love, a love to the loveless, shown that they might lovely be. At a time when we can't meet together to share communion, let's focus on the one whose body was broken and blood poured out to show us the full extent of his love. My song is love unknown.
we may not be physically meeting together, but there are still lots of things uh, going on. Uh, but we appreciate that some people are well connected while others would benefit from more. So don't don't feel burdened by these numerous ways to plug in. But I would encourage you to keep the rhythm of your life going through praying, feeding on God's word and encouraging one another. The Stay Connected podcast is available weekly and we plan to publish this weekly service online too. The home groups and the ladies Bible study groups will be using Zoom video conferencing. Some have already trialed this and more information will follow about that. And the young people with the youth leaders and led by Ollie Neal are connecting constantly, it seems, through Instagram and WhatsApp. As you know, the elders with support from the pastoral care team will be in regular contact. And I know that there are other groups as well to encourage, set up to encourage one another via messaging and social media. Keep across your emails. And have a look at our website and our social media channels to find out more. But crucially, if you need anything, please contact one of the elders or the church office. And if there is anybody else that you know that would appreciate our prayers and our support, please also get in touch. There's a sign at the front of our church also offering support in prayer and other practical emergency needs. So just remember... Uh, our wider community at this time too. Of course, prayer uh, is so important at this time. Let's continue praying for each other. You'll see uh, a regular email from the office with very focused and relevant prayer points. And so now uh, let's join together uh, in prayer. Our Father, Almighty God, we acknowledge that you are still in control, that your kingdom is unshakable, and despite the uncertainty and deep concern that you are the constant in our lives right now. Lord, you are full of mercy. You are forever kind, and your goodness extends to everyone. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see more of your grace and love. Father, being alone is hard. We were created for community, not confinement. But we are grateful that no matter how alone we may feel, you never leave or forsake us. And we are grateful for technology that helps us to stay in touch with each other. We pray for churches across the country who are finding new ways to connect with people. Bless this activity, Lord. Today, please remind us that at this time of social distancing and isolation, it won't last forever. Give us the strength to endure this difficult season and deepen our connection with you and with your people. Empower us with your love, peace, hope and joy, because we need it right now. Be with older members who feel especially vulnerable. Calm our anxious souls when our employment situation is difficult. Give patience to parents. Strengthen our resolve. Prompt us with people who need our support. Help us to look outside of ourselves. We particularly pray for those who are suffering and hurting because of this virus, we realise that there are many across the land and the entire world caught up in this pandemic. We humbly pray for an effective vaccine to this virus and most of all for your healing. Lord, there are many that we know who are working at various levels for the health service. 
We ask that you keep them safe. We ask that their calm and assured faith in you will be a great witness. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You'll know uh, that when Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he told her uh, about a new way to worship. That, that location doesn't matter. Verse 23 and 24 say, From here on, worshipping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but the right heart. For God is a spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshippers who worship and adore him in the realm of the spirit and in truth. So as we join in our various homes all around the country, let the spirit join us together as we sing praise to him. Our passage today focuses on the trials of Jesus before his execution, when when the authorities thought they had all the power. But we know the purposes of God. We know the higher authority at work. And so we can sing, Jesus shall take the highest honour. After we sing, Danny Crooks will continue our series in the Gospel of John as we journey towards Easter and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus shall take the highest honour. i
Good morning and welcome again to our Bible teaching session. The situation in our country has changed drastically even since last week. We are all discovering the reality of the truth that the church is not a building. The church is made up of people. And perhaps not having the use of our buildings forces us to discover even more deeply that the Church of Jesus Christ is a real, living, spiritual body. Now this morning we are continuing our series in John's Gospel, following the Lord Jesus on his fourth and final journey to Jerusalem. Last week we thought about what happened when the Lord put himself into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And this morning we will see the Lord in the hands of the secular Roman authority, in the person of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Let's read some of the details of this famous encounter, first from John chapter 18, beginning at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And now into chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Now, the Roman Empire was generally tolerant of religion, but it was not tolerant of religious conflict. They wanted society that was stable and peaceful. And they saw that religion, in some parts of the world at least, had the potential to cause trouble and to destabilise the state. In that regard, they're not unlike many secular governments today. Apart from Marxist countries and some zealously religious countries, most governments today claim to allow religious freedom, provided it does not lead to conflict and disorder. But following 9-11, many secular governments drew the conclusion that religion has the potential to destabilise society. And so they have responded in different ways to try to prevent religion leading to social unrest. Some governments try to convince people that all religions are basically equally valid. You can believe in it if you choose, but you should avoid claims of uniqueness or criticising other religions. There should be no need for any rivalry. That's one way to try to defuse religious rivalry and conflict. Not that it has been terribly successful. Some go even further, perhaps by restricting the expression of religion to private situations like in the home or in licensed churches. And some others try to ban religion altogether and persecute those who practice their religion. The, promise, the problem of the relationship between religion and the state has existed for thousands of years. One of the biggest problems is that secular governments usually have little understanding of the various religions they have to deal with. Christianity, perhaps more than any other faith, has been widely misunderstood. Some governments see Christians in large numbers as a threat to the state. Actually, if Christians lived by the Bible, there would be less of a problem. But sad to say, sometimes Christians have given their governments ground for this fear. If I could give a modern example, in recent years in Hong Kong, Christians have chosen to be at the forefront of social disorder to bring about greater democracy. And they have done that officially as Christians in the name of Christianity. It's almost inevitable that the more distant central government of China would see Christianity as a threat to stability. This is why the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor, Pilate, is so important. Pilate has to investigate whether there is any fundamental conflict between Jesus Christ and the Roman secular state. He wants to know if this new movement is a threat to social order. He wants to know if Christ is the cause of the religious conflict with the Jews or whether it is the fault of the Jews. Now, Pilate had the privilege of interviewing Jesus Christ himself. Governments today don't have that privilege. Instead, they rely on the message sent out by Christians 
and by the media's rather distorted presentation of Christianity. Sometimes Christians have departed from what Christ said to Pilate, and that is part of the problem. So it will be valuable for us as Christians today to note exactly what Christ said to Pilate on the relationship between himself and the state. Actually, I wish modern governments across the world would be prepared to investigate these issues as Pilate did, instead of vaguely lumping all religions together. Pilate started from a very low base of knowledge and he was fed a lot of misinformation, but he did at least try to get his head round the various strands of the trouble. This trial before Pilate became famous in the early church because the Lord's uh, statements were foundational for how the early church related to the Roman state. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul refers to it when he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I would like to focus on three foundational statements of the Lord, which he said to Pilate, and to look at the impact which they had on Pilate. Pilate's conclusion of the trial is quite clear. Three times we read that he announces that he finds no guilt in Christ. So if Christians stick exactly to what Christ said, no reasonable secular government should find Christianity a threat. The starting point for Pilate's investigation was the issue of whether or not Christ was claiming to be a king. Now, it was Christ himself, remember, who had raised this issue. Remember that the Lord Jesus had recently arrived in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey and coming as a biblical king. In so doing, Christ was fulfilling the prophecies from the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself did not say that he was a king, but he wanted people to work out for themselves from the scripture what type of king he was coming as. And the scriptures made it clear that the king from God would come riding on a donkey and would be humble and clearly a different type of a king from a king who would, was likely to challenge Caesar's political rule over Israel. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Pilate was duty bound to investigate whether Christ's coming on a donkey as God's promised king constituted a threat to the Roman secular rule. <clears throat> I think that's why Pilate's first question to the Lord Jesus is, <clears throat> Are you the king of the Jews? The Lord responded <clears throat> by asking Pilate where that idea came to him. The Lord did not go round proclaiming who he was, the Messiah and the Son of God. He always wanted people to draw their own conclusions based on the evidence of what he said and did and on the Old Testament. Pilate was no exception. The Lord here is prompting Pilate to think personally about who Jesus really is and not simply to take the word of the Jewish religious leaders for it. And so Christ is taking Pilate on a journey of discovery about who he is. 
As I said, there are three foundational statements which the Lord makes to explain his kingdom to Pilate and indeed to the whole church. Let's take the first one. This is where the Lord says, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is real. It exists now, but it is a spiritual kingdom. It's not political. It has no earthly headquarters. There is no such thing as a Christian country with a Christian government and with Christian laws. That would not be Christ's kingdom. And the Lord says, we must never take up arms to promote Christ's kingdom or to protect Christ's name or reputation. The Lord said to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Actually, one reason the Lord made this point to Pilate was to protect Peter. You remember when the Lord was being arrested, Peter produced a sword and tried to fight to stop Christ being delivered to the Jews. He even cut off a man's ear. But Christ publicly rebuked Peter for that and healed the man's ear. Peter was brave, but he totally misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. Peter's actions were actually a serious threat to the Lord and to the future of Christianity. But the Lord showed great presence of mind before Pilate. He rescued the situation from the danger Peter had created by his well-meaning but false understanding of Christ's kingdom. He may also have saved Peter from being arrested himself. So Christ's statement made it clear to Peter that there is no fundamental conflict between Christ's kingdom and secular governments on earth. The second foundational statement of the Lord is in verse 37. For this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, what particular truth did the Lord mean? From the context and from Paul's reference to this discussion in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the key truth is that there is another world. Christ came from that other world into this world. Christ came to challenge those who say that this natural world is all there is. The laws of physics describe how this visible world operates. But there is another world with its own laws where Christ rules. Philosophers and theologians could never work out what the world of heaven is like or even what God is like. But Christ came from there to witness to the truth to reveal the life of that other world, to bring people into that world and to call people to live for that world. In this one statement, Christ was also making another controversial point, at least controversial to Pilate and controversial today. The Lord was witnessing to the fact that there is such a thing as absolute truth. When it comes to the reality of what God is like and what heaven is like, these are no longer matters where everyone is free to have their own opinion. With the coming of Christ, we have the absolute truth about what God is like. Now, that is not popular with a lot of academics and philosophers today. They tell us we can all have our own truth. We can put our own interpretation of things 
and this is just as valid as anyone else's interpretation. The claim that there is only one thing which is true is regarded as arrogant. The problem with believing in absolute truth is that there is only one right answer, but there are millions of wrong answers. So, of course, you are going to be in the minority if you believe that something is absolutely true. Pilate had no concept of absolute truth. His culture was very postmodern, if I could put it like that. New ideas in Roman and Greek religion were often being invented by poets and playwrights and philosophers. And you could pick and choose those that you agreed with most. But when Christ came, he had come to tell people the truth. And Pilate responded, what is truth? At this point in the trial, Pilate went out again and announced to the Jewish leaders that he could find no fault and no guilt in Jesus. But then perversely, he had the Lord Jesus flogged, a terrible punishment that many a prisoner did not survive. Then he allowed the Roman soldiers to mock and humiliate the Lord, dressing him in a kingly robe and pressing a crown of thorns into his head. Perhaps Pilate thought that his compromise of flogging would satisfy the Jews, but he totally misread their hatred and their determination to have Christ crucified. When he brought out the wounded Christ to them, they cried out even more for his death. It was at this point that they revealed the real reason for their hatred in verse 7 of chapter 19. Because he has made himself the Son of God. This statement really rattles Pilate. The Romans were quite familiar with the idea of their supposed gods coming down to earth in human form as sons of God. There were stories in their culture of how such gods uh, supposedly visited certain specific cities and were not welcomed. And these cities had suffered terribly, they believed, as a result. So when the thought struck Pilate that he had received a visitation from one of the sons of God and that he had flogged this son of God, it's no wonder he was afraid. So Pilate resumes the trial and asks the Lord, where are you from? The Lord looks at the man who had just declared him to be innocent and in the next breath had had him cruelly flogged. And the Lord gives him no answer. But he had one more thing to say to Pilate, which is the third foundational statement, which has huge ramifications. Pilate thinks that because of his authority as a governor, he has complete control over events and control over Christ. He says to the Lord, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate thought that he had the freedom to decide what was going to happen, but he did not. And events would show that Pilate was actually weak and powerless. It had already been predicted in the Old Testament how Jesus would die, lifted up just the way the Romans executed people and definitely not by stoning by the Jews. So the Lord contradicts Pilate. He says, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then he goes on to lay down this vital principle. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Or as the NIV puts it, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. This is Christ's third foundational statement. I want to make just two points about this as we draw to a close. Firstly, the Lord is saying that Pilate did not have the full freedom to choose to do all that he wanted. In that sense, Pilate in these moments did not have full free will. And for that reason, the Lord says, Pilate is less guilty than those who did. What Pilate did in handing the Lord over the Jews to be crucified was terrible. But God did not hold him guilty for that, because God had constrained Pilate in the choices that he made. The Jews, on the other hand, were not so constrained. They did have the power to choose how they would treat Christ. For that reason, Christ says that they are more guilty than Pilate, not because they did something worse, but because they had the freedom to choose. This principle from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself has huge implications in one particular debate. That's the debate over whether or not it is God who decides who is going to heaven and who is going to hell, or whether we have the freedom to choose. There are those who tell us that God makes that choice, and those who are not chosen cannot believe. But they also tell us that God still regards such people as guilty. As far as I can see, the Lord Jesus flatly contradicts that teaching. A person is only regarded as guilty by God if they are able to make their own free choice. But that same statement of the Lord Jesus is amazing for another reason. Just picture the scene. Pilate is the judge in his palace. Christ is the prisoner in the dock. The prosecution and accusers stand outside. And we hear a verdict of guilt being announced. But who announces the verdict of guilty? It's the Lord Jesus. He says to Pilate, you are partly guilty, but not as guilty as my accusers. They are more guilty than you. And Pilate, who up to that moment thought he was the judge, suddenly finds himself being judged by the prisoner. And amazingly, Pilate accepts Christ's verdict on him. He does not rebuke Christ or try to justify himself. Quite the opposite, in fact. He accepts that Christ had the right to judge him. Did you notice the very next words? From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Last Sunday and this Sunday, we have been considering Christ as a prisoner as the person being charged and being judged before two different courts. But actually, it wasn't Christ who was being judged. The Lord pronounced different levels of guilt on these two courts. When people evaluate Jesus, 
and even judge him and choose how to respond to him, we are, in a sense, being judged by Christ. The choices we make in responding to Christ expose our innermost attitudes. It's our hearts that are being judged. Pilate had earlier gone to the crowd of Jewish leaders and very weakly asked them this question. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That is a question that challenges each of us personally. What will you do with Jesus? But going one step further, the whole role reversal in this final scene of who is judge reminds me of a rather solemn song that I remember my father often used to sing. It is called, Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall. Here's how it begins. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken, what meaneth this sudden call? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Some day your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the dignity and self-control of your dear son. Despite the intense suffering inflicted on him by Pilate, his message in those moments was so profound and has guided the church for 2,000 years. We praise you for his faithfulness to your plan. Because of that, many of us this morning have come to know the truth and have had our hope set on the world to come. Accept our thanks and praise for your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Danny. As we close, let us uh, sing Above All Powers. Thanks for joining us today and until next week. Keep connected, stay well, be blessed and be a blessing to others. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what
Oh. 